This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Faskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind the scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Randy Garg. Randy is the founder and managing partner of Vistera Growth. Vistera provides highly flexible growth debt and growth equity financing solutions to mid to later stage technology companies across North America. Vistera's typical investment size ranges from 5 million to 30 million per investment for companies that have scaled or are scaling past 10 million in revenues. In this episode, we discuss his time at Discovery Capital Corporation, a Vancouver-based venture capital firm with investments like Sierra Wireless, working at BD Capital and uncovering a gap in the tech space, misconceptions people have about debt, common mistakes growth stage companies make, how debt and equity deals differ, and what makes a great board member. Please enjoy my conversation with Randy Garg. Randy, I'd love to start with your time at Discovery Capital Corp. What was Discovery? I'm not super familiar with that. And was that your first foray into venture and investing? Yeah, it was. Thanks for having me, Evan. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with your uh, your audience here. So, um, yeah, so I, I just quick story moved out 
West in 1991 to go to uh, UBC, did my MBA there. Uh, that'll come back into the story a bit later, but, uh, in 93, when I graduated, looking around for opportunities here, thought of moving back to Toronto, which is, which is where I was from, <clears throat> but, uh, uh, stumbled upon this little, uh, venture capital firm. It was a two-man outfit at the time, uh, doing early stage investing to British Columbia based tech companies. Uh, I had actually done my, uh, done a few work terms in IBM in Toronto, uh, during my undergrad, so I had enough of a. Uh, a sniff of technology to know that I was interested in it. And then I did my MBA in finance. So I figured this was a good way to, to marry the two together. What was the tech space in BC, Vancouver, Victoria, whatever, around that period of time? Go back to the early 90s. So what are we talking, 30 plus years ago. Uh, so pretty nascent. There's a few anchor tenants, uh, as it were, uh, uh, that were defining the local tech space, either on the software side, uh, there's a bunch of stuff in wireless. There's actually a bunch of stuff in the entertainment gaming area and then life sciences. So, uh, with discovery, we're predominantly focused on software companies, uh, but you have to, that particular fund, unlike the current fund that I run was limited to British Columbia investing. So you had to go where the, where the market was, but it was pretty nation. What did Discovery do kind of that early in your career from like a foundational perspective as an investor, especially kind of maybe being more in a nascent market, like over 20, 30 years ago, what did that really establish for you as an investor? Did it give you a certain outlook on investments or interest in a certain space? Yeah, it was interesting when I joined, um, they had just started their first fund and, uh, really when I came in, they saw me as running a bit more of an advisory practice almost within uh, the firm. So helping companies that were raising me, put their business plans together, helping companies that we had invested in, look at other initiatives uh, in terms of growth and expansion. Uh, so interestingly, my, my very first deal was uh, helping Sierra Wireless, which has turned, turned into one of the big anchor companies in BC, helping them put their business plan together back in sort of the early 90s. And that plan was then used to raise additional capital and they've gone on to become a highly successful company, uh, still keep in touch with the guys to this day. So I think by exposing me early on to that stage of company and really getting into the guts of these companies and that, you know, this type of investing isn't just uh, hit a button on your screen or mail a check across the country and hope it comes back friends, uh, you're, you're really getting in there. Uh, with each of these companies and need to get a deep understanding of what they're doing. And what caused the shift to go to PwC? And, you know, around that time, you're roughly there from 2005 to 2010. Love to get your view on, on why you went to PwC, what that was like. And then also, how did you see the tech space evolve over that period of time from when you originally got in at Discovery? Yeah, so this discovery was a was, was a pretty long run. I know I know we, we touched on it briefly, but it was a, it was eleven years that I was there. And if you think back, it was a very interesting eleven years because you have the whole dot com run up the nineties, plus a bit of a recovery. So I think going through that cycle was very um, influential in terms of how I look at companies even to this day. Uh, recognizing cycles, recognizing bubbles, recognizing things that are probably a bit out of whack in terms of, you know, what you normally see with, uh, with companies. So, and, and over that time, you know, working with dozens of companies, dozens of entrepreneurs, founders across different sectors where, uh, you know, some of them were fast growing, some of them were, were sort of flattish and other ones where it was, okay, this isn't working. We've got to figure out a new strategy. Uh, or the management team isn't the right management team. You have to look at placing management in some cases. So, um, you know, at the earlier stage, you're, you're a lot more hands-on and, and involved with these companies. Uh, so I think, you know, that, that experience was phenomenal. So uh, I did that until about 2004 and saw companies through that cycle. Um, when I, when I left in 04, it was really, you know, my two partners at the time had sort of a different vision of where the company was going to go, where the the funds are going to go. Uh, they're also quite a bit older than, than what I was at the time. So, um, uh, so I just decided that it was time to do something different. <clears throat> uh, one of the gaps I saw in the market was really on the, 
the sell side. So going and selling those companies that I used to put money into. Uh, so I approached PwC at the time more, nothing to do with the accounting side of the business. So it was purely on corporate finance. So I was then helping sell those companies that I used to put money into, helping them raise additional capital. So uh, I think what you find in this business, I kind of did backwards. Most people try to go from the sell side to the buy side. So I kind of went over to the other side just to, to see what it was like and then try it out for a while. Maybe just circle back on on the dot com bubble there and kind of what you saw through that. Do you see any similarities with what we're going through now? Obviously, every situation is very unique, but do you did you kind of see things unra- unraveling or winding up in a certain way? I just love to get your take on what it's been like going through different various cycles and if you start to see any kind of patterns there. The dot com bubble is not something that we'll likely see ever again. These are companies that weren't really companies. Their ideas getting massive valuations and massive amounts of capital. I think what you saw more recently with the huge run-up in valuations is happening around certain sectors is uh, these were still real companies generating real revenue, real customers, mainly B2B versus B2C. You'd had a lot of B2C companies uh, during the internet bubble. Um, So it was a different... The ability for the companies now to become cash flow positive, to be real business, and it's far more achievable. Uh, now, did the valuations get way ahead of themselves as they did in that bubble period? Absolutely. And that's where you've seen the, the cooling off now. What was the experience like being on the sell side at PwC that has made you better as an investor? Did it give you a new perspective on anything or did it did it help in any way? Yeah, a great observation. It was, it was very informative. Uh, you know, all the stuff that we as investors uh, see in companies and think are valuable, uh, take great pride in that we, we found and help uh, further or whatnot. Um, when you're on the sell side, you're actually trying to sell that story to a strategic acquirer or another fund or someone else. And you actually get a perspective of what really matters. What they really look for versus what we think they're they're looking for. So it was a great experience. It was five years. Um, I really missed uh, sort of my side and working more closely with companies. The sell side is a very transactional business. Uh, you're in there, you're doing the deal, and you're moving on, and you're not likely to be doing other stuff with those companies. So it's a very short duration typically versus on buy side, the investing side. Uh, these are multi-year, often 10 plus year relationships. And was that why you transitioned over to BD, which is more of a family office environment? I'm sure they do a bunch of different things, but what, what caused that shift? And again, what kind of perspective did you gain from kind of being more in a family office environment? If you view that as kind of maybe different from, uh, uh discovery or other things that you had done. Yeah, so going back to 2010, um, my intent was to very clearly get back onto the investing side, get back into what I like doing the most, which is helping founders, helping entrepreneurs, helping companies grow and expand their business value. Uh, so around 2010, I had made the decision that I wanted to leave that sort of transactional business and back onto the investing side. Uh, at the time, I had approached uh, my good friend, Ryan Beattie, who I went to MBA school with at UBC back in the early 90s, maintained their friendship, and he had tracked my career, and I've obviously seen the tremendous growth that he had had uh, with his overall business. Um, you know, their core business is real estate, and they're one of the best in the industry at, at doing real estate. Uh, but he had also made a bunch of private investments into a variety of companies, uh, and had the beginnings of what was starting to look like a, a family office. Uh, so through some discussion with him and understanding his goals and objectives, mine in terms of getting back on the investing side, we thought it was a really good match. Uh, we knew we liked each other. We knew we could work together. Uh, so the ability to go in and help the family and predominantly Ryan diversify a bit from real estate. But I did nothing on the real estate side. They know that business cold. I, I had nothing add in on that side, but it helped, you know, help build a portfolio of tech companies and other similar types of companies that, that diversifies the family's interests. 
but allows me to do kind of what I want it to do uh, again. Uh, <clears throat> I will draw the distinction, and this leads to kind of what we're doing now as well, but at the time, it was a choice that do you go back to doing early stage investing or do you look at what I perceive to be a gap in the market at the time or at the growth stage? So these companies that were looking for growth capital, but not traditional forms of growth capital, uh, you know, whether it's debt, whether it's equity, whether it's some hybrid or in-between type instrument, uh, there was a big opportunity in the market. So that was really, you know, my pitch to Ryan at the time and, uh, at Agreed that there was a big opportunity, so we were investing off the, the balance sheet of the family. Uh, I was able to co-invest on every deal, which was very important from an alignment standpoint, uh, and follow the strategy that I that I felt appropriate. Now I had to take over a few of the old deals that he had done and, and help fix them or restructure them or whatnot. But, uh, it's all part of the package, I guess. Why do you think that? gap really existed I, you know maybe you were specifically looking at vancouver bc i'm sure some canadian wide as well um why did that gap exist and i guess how had the tech space in vancouver bc specifically how, how did you see that changed by 2010 when like you saw that gap was it companies were growing faster and larger and they just needed a different type of capital a different assistance further down the road i guess why did that gap exist? And like, was that because of the changing tech space? With BD, you know, we were not geographically bound in any way. So we were doing deals uh, both sides of the border, even looking at international opportunities. So it was far less about what was going on in British Columbia. It was more about where, where are the gaps overall in the industry and how best address those. Um, and really it's the same thing that we see today is. You know, you have banks on one side uh, or other forms of lending uh, outfits on one side, and then you have traditional equity on the other side, whether it's venture capital or growth equity. But in the middle, there's this massive opportunity to get involved with companies at different <clears throat> inflection points, different uh, points in their journey. Maybe a good time to raise debt versus equity or a good time to raise equity versus debt. And just being able to be a very flexible or capital, those environments, and having the wherewithal to understand that and, you know, relate to the founders, relate to the companies and, and help them understand why, you know, if you took this type of capital now, it'll set you up much better spot to get that other type of capital 12 months from now, 24 months from now. So, so that, that whole strategy was, was one that uh, we really uh, followed very closely at, uh, at the family office and forms part of what today so you're co-investing with bd you're doing all this work with bd and i'm assuming this goes well because the gap that you noticed obviously turns into vistera how did that transition happen and how did you did you just see the really great signs like hey like this gap is real the thesis was correct and we just need to go after this even more so yeah, I know that the market opportunity is, is huge. If you look at the tech space, France, North America, Denmark, globally, there's a, there's a massive opportunity for the segment of the tech space. It's really that kind of mid-later stage growth company doing anywhere from 10 to 100 million in revenue, mainly business to business, not really business to consumer. And there's, you know, there's hundreds, thousands of those companies out there, uh, that, that, that show where our solutions would apply. So, um, you know, come 2015, it was really a question of, do we keep doing it just as the family office and do I keep doing it with one investor or do I create a platform that had multiple investors, uh, including, including the family office and the decision was made and with the, with the blessing of the family office continues to be one of our biggest investors to go and create a new platform uh, that we call Vistara. What was that first step? So you, you go going out, you're raising capital, and then you're hit, hitting the road, meeting startups. What was like that feedback initially? Were, were you just really trying to figure out, okay, here's the right stage of companies we're focusing. These are the right types of companies. Would founders sometimes be looking for 
a different source of capital and maybe get confused. I guess what were the what was the initial entry to the market like versus you know today that you have an established brand and name and everyone understands that. When I started with a family office and was really leveraging long-standing relationships with advisors and with venture funds, with entrepreneurs, uh, board members, you, know, you name it, to create for, you know, the offering that we had at the time. Uh, in creating Vistara, we had the benefit of being in market for five years, so following the exact same strategy. So Vistara is really a continuation of that, um, but it was still an exercise. You know, anytime you're establishing a new brand or a new offering in the market, uh, different players, new team members have to go educate the market and make the market aware exists for one and what you're doing as well. I find growth can be a term that can be overused. What does growth mean for you specifically in terms of what does that mean? Like, what does that stage actually mean from a company perspective? What should a company be doing during that stage? And then I guess also kind of if that directly reflects to growth at Vistera as well. So I think, you know, over my career, I've benefit of being involved with early stage companies as well as mid later stage or growth stage is the overused term, as you say, uh, you know, at the early stage, I think you're really, you're really still, uh, at, at the, almost the experimental phase, got some early customers, you've got your early product set. You've got the beginnings of a management team figuring out your product market fit. You may have some early product market fit. Um, and then hopefully you continue to evolve from there. And at the growth stage, a lot of that has been figured out. Not all of it, but a lot of it's been figured out. You know, you're probably on version five or six of your product, not version one or two of your product. Got dozens of customers, a dozen customers. Got uh, a proper management team that's been established. You may have gone out and raised other early stage venture capital. So you probably have a board, you have some governance in place. You have uh, a more proven track record where, you, where any stage investor can come in and look at the last two, three, four years and see how you've grown uh, through that. Have you been expanding your margins? Have you been able to uh, raise your prices? Are you, uh, or are you kind of giving your stuff away at, at little to no margin? So there's just a lot more proof points really at, at the growth stage uh, as an investor. Um, you know, as a company, I think now we've got a situation where uh, you've got other stakeholders involved, you've got a company that has proven itself to a certain degree. But now that you've done that, you really want to put the accelerator on it and try to get this going faster. And whether that's organic growth, just keep doing what you're doing within uh, whatever product set, whatever company structure you have, or there's also inorganic growth where you're maybe going out and looking at acquiring other companies that get you into new markets or taking out what used to be a competitor or whatnot. So, you know, growth can take different forms. It can, it can take different, uh, it can come at different speeds. Uh, you have slow growth, uh, steady eddy companies that are fine pumping out a profit. And you've got lots of those companies that are great businesses. Those tend to be more founder control. Um, and then you've got the ones that maybe have higher growth aspirations that have probably gone out and raised venture capital uh, because the VCs do want to see that higher level of growth and that acceleration. So it's a mixed bag, uh, really. But um, I think growth is really a product of uh, whatever aspiration the founders uh, and the management team has in the company. What's the kind of breakdown on those two different types of companies there, that kind of steady eddy growth and like maybe that more like accelerated traditional like venture scale and do you invest in both of those and kind of what are some nuances or interest in both of those types of businesses? We do, we do invest in both. I mean, we love the founder owned control companies because the founders are, they're really in it to win it. They're, they're very much, uh, you know, they tend to own probably anywhere from 50 to 80% of their companies still. This is their life. Uh, we have everything on the line here and they really want make sure this company succeeds. Um, many traditional providers of debt, uh, there's a category of debt called venture debt, 
that really only supports venture-backed companies. So they're betting more on who the investors are really versus what a company is or who the founder is. So, uh, you know, we love working with um, founder-controlled, founder-owned companies. We've had some of our biggest successes with those companies. Um, then you've got another category of company and yeah. in other cases where you need to go and raise equity at all. Uh, they've gone and they've done their series A, B, C, whatever it is. And in those cases, we tend to get involved more when they're kind of series B or series C stage. Uh, so they've gotten through that minimum revenue threshold. They've gotten through a lot of things that I just discussed in terms of the company profile. So, um, yeah, we have a, we have a, a good mix of, of both in the portfolio. What are some misconceptions around debt? You know, I think equity seems to get more of the headline or might be more sexy. What are misconceptions founders have around debt? And maybe specifically with Vistera, like what is, is debt unique there? You talk about venture debt with other types of companies. Is your debt unique in the way that you kind of use that? You know, going back to the early 90s when I started in this thing, there wasn't really too many options when it came to debt. You get a line against your receivables from the bank or something, but the debt markets have clearly evolved. Equities kind of remain the way it is. Really, there's there's certainly more players, but you know the the Series A, B, C, what I call the alphabet soup of venture capital, uh, is still there. So if companies want to go down that path. I think the main thing that people are appreciating or founders are appreciating is. Equity is permanent capital. Debt is uh, temporary, can be, can be temporary capital. In fact, a lot of our founders, given how we structure our debt deals, call it rental equity. So, you know, you have the opportunity to take us out at a certain point in time or really any time. Uh, we don't need to be there forever. Once you raise equity, it's basically there forever until you sell the company. Now, maybe you can orchestrate it secondary sale or something along the way, but you have to assume it's there until you exit the company. The return expectations for equity are way higher than they are for debt, right? So a traditional venture equity, growth equity investor is looking for anywhere for, from two to three times their money up to 10 times their money. Uh, because they, for them, it's a portfolio approach where they need a few of those big home runs to make up for the ones that, that don't make it. On the debt side of the equation, every deal pretty much has to stand on its own two feet. You know, whereas we're trying to make returns in the one and a half X to two X zone, uh, you know, where equity guys are trying to do way more than that. So I think what you've seen is a, an appreciation of, um, so the, the underlying value of these companies, the enterprise value of these companies, which has encourage lenders to get into the market where we're lending to these companies. There's no hard assets, really. You know, the assets leave the building every day. Employee base uh, leaves the building every day. Uh, so from a traditional debt perspective, it, it doesn't tick that box. Um, but you do have a category of lenders like ourselves where you appreciate that these companies have real value. They have real value through their IP. They have real value through the customer contracts. I think a lot of this is also to do with the evolution of the revenue models uh, within software where we play, you know, back again in the early nineties, it was more of a, you know, you wake up uh, January 1st and start all over. You might have 15% of your revenue as or 20% of your revenue as your maintenance and support uh, that you can count on uh, versus today with the SaaS models where, you know, whatever, after whatever you've churned, you, you're starting off at last year's recurring revenue and you're hopefully growing from there. So it's a, it's a lot more predictable, which I think makes it a bit easier for lenders to play. So long way of answering your question, if, if I am at, in fact answering your question, uh, is I think most CFOs, founders are appreciating that uh, they can get different forms of capital at different inflection points. Um, yeah. uh, we see a lot these days in particular, companies that want to extend their runway. Uh, they don't want to issue equity. Equity is very expensive, right? Because companies aren't getting the valuations, uh, pretty heavy terms that are associated with it. So they're using debt to really extend that runway and, and provide that extra capital uh, beyond what the banks can provide them. 
if you're looking at it from a founder perspective, you talked about extending the runway there, you know, not having to use equity. I guess if I'm like a first time founder and I'm out there and, hey, I'm going to raise some capital from an equity standpoint, maybe I have Vestera as an option or potentially I can go to like a big bank and get more of a traditional debt source. I guess what are like the advantages there with Vestera with like kind of like that flexible debt model? So the banks, and you know, for a while the banks got super aggressive and were providing way more capital than they really should. So they're traditionally banks provide working capital, right? And then it's alternative lenders or equity that provides you like growth capital, as it were. For a while, their banks were getting super aggressive and providing some of that extra growth capital. And I think what you've seen now with the demise of Silicon Valley Bank, just some tightening from other lenders is they're kind of going back to the older model where they're more of a working capital provider. So, you know, that leaves room for alternative guys like us that come in and provide that flexible form of growth capital. So you can either go down the equity path, which makes sense for some. Um, and if it fits the right profile, if you get the right kind of terms, go for it, raise, raise the equity. But in other cases, as, as we're seeing and the opportunities we get into, you know, in, in some cases you have founders that don't want to dilute. They'd rather just provide, do a debt deal and maintain control of their company. Uh, so those have been very successful for us. Uh, you have other cases where they haven't gone down the traditional venture path. Uh, they think they might at some point. Um, but we come in, in those cases, we often do convertible debt. So we'll go in with debt with the intention of converting into equity, but only when that next equity round actually happens. So what we, in fact, become is kind of the training wheels, as it were, for these companies to get the proper structures in place, governance in place, and get ready for prime time, as it were, when it, when it comes to raising uh, bigger pools of equity. Okay, so we've done that very successfully with a few of our deals where we converted into equity and they've become some of the biggest winners in our portfolio. Um, and in other cases, you've got companies that have raised traditional equity. They're just in between their B round and C round or C round, D round, and the market sucks and they don't want to slow down on growth or they need to achieve some additional milestones before they're going to get a better deal or frankly, wait for the market to get better. Um, which is another way that our debt comes in. And so, and we also work closely with the banks, but often the banks will be there providing that working capital line, and then we'll come in behind the bank uh, with what we provide. So it's a very complementary relationship at the end of the day with other debt providers and the equity providers. You mentioned earlier the stage of companies that you're working with, you know, maybe have been on version four or five, six of their product and, you know, have some metrics that you can really dive into. Where do you view the biggest risks or, or common issues, if there are any, with companies at that kind of growth stage versus, you know, that very, very early stage finding pro product market fit? Is it like scaling the team, culture? Like what, what are some kind of things that you notice that are common issues? Yeah, good question. I think a lot of it does come down to team. You know, the, the team that brought you from zero to 10, 15 million in revenue. Um, you know, do they have the experience? Do they have the chops to take you to 50 or a hundred million in revenue? So, so quite often that is the case. Uh, I think on the, you know, for the longest time on the local scene, at least there was always this fear that these companies only got to a certain level and then they have to sell because they didn't have the management talent to take it to the next level. And we saw a lot of you know, quote unquote earlier exits as a result of that. Um, that's, that's, that's kind of sorting itself out. I think there's been enough, uh, people that have gone and had multiple companies to be involved with, they're bringing experiences to bear. The tech industry is maturing. So now, you know, in the early days, quite often this was the first tech company these companies, individuals were working for. And now this is their fourth, their sixth company. So they can bring those experiences to bear in the new company. Uh, tech is evolving. You know, there's a lot of stuff that uh, you got to keep uh, on top of vis-a-vis -vis your product, markets you sell into. There's a continuous threat of disruption. 
part of the excitement of investing in tech is this massive opportunity out there. But at the same time, there's a huge amount of risk and threat out there coming from all places. So, um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of companies have huge growth aspirations, uh, but for whatever reason, they may not make it, whether that's access to the right talent, access to capital. Uh, and then you've got a lot of companies that are performing extremely well and hitting all kinds of great metrics uh, along the way. So uh, I'd say if I were to put my finger on one thing, it's it's mostly team. What What is it like when you're analyzing a deal from an equity side of things? And a debt side of things, do you look at different parts of the business, different metrics? Do you look at the business differently? I'm assuming maybe equity side, you're just looking for as much growth as possible on debt. I'm sure you're looking for that too, but is there other like little nuances that are different? We have this, this kind of motto at Vistara where all of our deals need to tick three boxes. So you need security, you need yield, and you need upside. So we, we try to make sure that we have, um, some exposure to each of these things. So on, from a pure depth standpoint, you want to cover your downside. You can't have losses in the, in the portfolio or very limited number of losses in the portfolio, unlike an equity, um, yet investor. So security is paramount, uh, getting, getting paid along the way, uh, getting paid to wait, um, is, is key. You know, we, we deliver that either return to our investors and some form of yield interest, uh, uh, whatever it is, uh, part of the assessment as well. And then upside, we want to participate in whether it's a convertible or whether it's warrants or some form of backend participation on an exit or whatever it is. So from an equity standpoint, you know, they don't really care about the middle part. They don't care about yield. They're just looking mainly for upside. I think what you're seeing in different markets, so in the, sort of the hype cycle markets, so the one when times are, are really frothy, it's all about upside. There's zero view to downside protection or what could go wrong or whatever. It's just grow, baby, grow, right? Spend as much as you can and just grow. Uh, what you're seeing now as markets have stabilized and corrected is you're seeing a lot of structure. It's, it's funny how many equity term sheets we see with our companies that, that we look at and say, Hey, wait a minute. That's, that looks like a debt deal. You know, that's, uh, that's debt masquerading as equity effectively. So, uh, so equity kind of comes and goes as well in, in cycles. Uh, but one is, I'd say probably more of a downside view, uh, downside coverage view on debt and more of an upside view on the equity. What do you look at beyond capital if you do f with the firm? Are you looking at having experts in place or you have connections to help with that growth stage? Maybe you have fractional folks on roster, maybe full time. Do you look at it beyond capital in terms of how can we really help these companies excel? Yeah, we do. Um, and different types of funds and, and firms take different approaches here. So we're, we're, always a minority investor where we are equity. So we're not going in with like a PE or, or growth model where they have sort of these operating partners that go in and uh, coach management tell them what to do, insert their own people, that type of thing. Uh, that's not what we do. We try to be helpful where we can. It's, it's more, we do have a growth advisor network made up of a number of our investors in the fund that have had various experiences. We have a couple dozen current or former technology executives that are investors in our fund that, that are available to our companies on an on-demand basis effectively. Um, so we do chat, try to provide that. Uh, we do spend a lot of time with companies, um, typically through a board role or an observer role where, uh, you know, we will help with strategy. We will try to lend our experience working with dozens of companies that have followed a similar path. Our advice uh, quite often is focused on the finance side of things. And what are your funding options? Who are some of the investors that you should be talking to now? Uh, as you think about the next stage of growth, the next round of financing, uh, if you're looking at hiring an investment banker, cause you're considering your alternatives, whether it's an exit. IPO or whatever, who are some of those folks? Who do we have relationships with? So a lot of it is around connectivity. 
with uh, with the outside world. And I'd say the other last area is probably on recruiting. Uh, we do we've seen enough teams and, and executives through our travels that we kind of know what to look for, what questions to ask uh, people that are coming in. So quite often we're part of that interviewing process. We're also part of the recruiting process where they're asking us, who do we know that would be a, a great CFO for our company, given the stage that we're at and, and the go. So uh, again, we just, we just try to help where we can, uh, and, uh, and try not to, uh, what was the saying I heard the other day where, uh, we're, we're hands-on, we're not hands-in. So I really like that saying, I think that that encapsulates uh, how we approach things uh, quite uh, accurately. That's a great saying. You mentioned a board director observer there, and I, and I know you've been in that role a few times. And what makes a really great board director and observer, if, if you can, if you think those two are the same? Um, yeah, what are some things that you think make a great board director, whether it's like a founder looking for one or maybe someone who is currently a board director and maybe wants to get better? It's a tricky role because um, quite often if you're an investor taken on your board. So just to clarify, we, we take observer seats where we're only debt, but where we've converted to equity, we would become board members typically. Um, but part of the reason you're on the board or in an observer role is because of your investment. So now you've got this balancing act of wearing your, your fund hat and then wearing your company hat. So I think a lot of people get caught up in, you know, okay, who are, who are you really looking out for? So you really need to have some level of experience that creates that balance. You need to have a balanced view. It can't always be about looking for yourself. You got to be looking out for other shareholders, the company at large, building the overall value. So I think if you're sitting there and you're always just looking out for yourself, that, that doesn't really bode well from, a, you know, becoming a. Uh, a great uh, board director or board observer. So I'd say balance is, is key. Um, you know, being a founder, being a CEO, is, it's a, it can be a lonely place. So can you be a good listener? Can you be a good coach? Can you be a, a shoulder to lean on? You know, here for somebody to just vent into as they're dealing with challenges, whether they're people challenges or challenges with other board members even. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it and board composition, whether it's a very investor heavy board or whether it's more of an industry oriented board, I think that plays a lot into it. So what's, what's the quality of the conversation is the conversation about strategy or is it really an operational board that's diving into every little detail that management should be dealing with? I've also been on boards where it's really just an audience versus a board it's sitting there and forcing management to do a report every quarter and really getting no good feedback or advice or anything. You're just giving a, you know, a presentation to an audience. So it's not really that useful. Um, yeah, I've had through my career, I've, I've had a chance, thankfully in my early days to be on a few boards, be in the room be part of those discussions. And, and I think really the, the main test that I've always maintained for myself is, is the, uh, is the CEO calling you more often than you're calling them? And hmm. if it's them calling you more often than you calling them, then, uh, you're probably adding some value. What are some verticals or spaces you're interested in now as an investor, uh, you know, AI is very hot right now. Are you in, interested in that space? Are you interested in different geographies or different types of businesses? What's kind of got you really interested at the moment? We're a software focused investor. Uh, it is enterprise software, B2B. So we will look horizontally, which is where I would put AI. I think AI is more of a foundational horizontal technology uh, versus a vertical, which some people are trying to put it into. Uh, from a vertical standpoint, we spend a lot of time in fintech and not just different forms of, uh, you know, lending or whatever the case might be. It's more companies that sell software to banks or insurance companies or wealth management or whatnot. That's a core area of focus. We have one of our team dedicated in that area. Uh, 
cybersecurity, cloud IT infrastructure is another area that we spend a lot of time in, the portfolio companies in. Again, we have another one of our principles focused on that area. You really need to have some domain expertise to be interesting and relevant in those areas. When you're having the founder conversations, it's hard to be a generalist across the board. Uh, so from a vertical standpoint, I say healthcare is probably the third vertical that, that we're, we're looking at very closely. And, and the final would be clean tech. Climate tech would be another huge area of interest. The challenge in the, in the last one in climate tech is finding those companies that have got a growth stage. So I think that, that is an industry that is also very nascent. And now you're starting to see companies bubble up that hopefully get to the point that we can be relevant uh, to their capital structure as they think about growth. Uh, horizontally, yeah, AI is everywhere. It's, uh, it's going to be pervasive. It is starting to be pervasive. So, you know, in many respects, it's going to, it has the ability to wipe out certain companies. Uh, so it's a huge threat and yes. But I, I personally believe, and we're seeing this through a few of our companies, that it can also be a huge catalyst to growth. Uh, AI running wild is a very dangerous thing. To me, there's a huge opportunity around uh, governance, risk, privacy, security, compliance, as it relates to AI and managing that AI uh, to be more effective for organizations. So very early days, it's, it's a bit of a mad dash right now. Everyone's trying to place their bets and anything.ai. Uh, but I, I think you'll start to see some real interesting businesses and growth profiles come out of it. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. We'd love to know your favorite book. Sure. And if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you've currently read or you're planning to read. I wish I had more time to read. I, I do think there's a lot of podcasts. I drive, so there's uh, some good ones. And best like the best. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a great one. Great one. Fantastic. Uh, 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 guess uh, I need to start listening to more of your podcast. I listen as well. Uh, I just finished uh, Outlived, Peter Attila's book. That was a great read. Uh, I was able to read that up in Worcester uh, just recently. I really like the approach to health span versus lifespan. I'm 54 now, so I do think about health and, uh, you know, being there as my teenage daughters grow up and how I can be, uh, there in a healthy form. So, so that was one that I just finished reading. Um, the other one I got teed up for this weekend is, uh, uh, it's a book somebody recommended to me. One of my fellow directors, uh, it's Kaifu Lee, uh, it's AI 2041. So this is, uh, you know, 10 visions of the future. Uh, based on what's happening in AI. So I think uh, that'll be an interesting uh, Labor Day read here as we, as we head into the long weekend. I'll have to check that out. And plus one on Outlive, I'm halfway through it and it's fantastic. So glad to hear you liked it too. Yeah, it's pretty dense and technical, but uh, you know, there's a lot of pieces in there that are good takeaways. What are you most excited about in the next year, personally and professionally? Well, on the professional side, yeah, we see... Tremendous opportunity in the market swim lane that we traditionally play in between traditional debt and traditional equity is super wide right now as the banks have retreated and as equity is effectively retreated. So we've got no shortage of opportunities. We're just finishing off deploying our fourth fund. We're about to kickstart raising our fifth fund. Uh, that'll be hopefully, you know, another 400 million US that we have to manage. And as part of our next fund, um, <clears throat> to take advantage of the opportunities that are there, we have a team of 12 right now, we'll probably grow that to 15. So that's got me excited in terms of just growth of the, the business, uh, personal side. I do want to spend time on my health and uh, make sure that I'm around to enjoy the fruits of all this, uh, labor healthy way. And, uh, and I guess outside of that, just trying to find a way to stay relevant to, uh, two teenage daughters. How do you deal with hard times, uh, starting your own fund, the career you've had, uh, being a, being a parent, those are, those are challenging times. Do you have any processes or things that you do have, that have helped you? I've never really applied for a job. It's always been going and creating opportunity. Whether it's, it's 
discovery or the family office or in BWC or creating Vistara. Um, I've had a long-standing belief that you create your own opportunity. And once you create it, you own it. There's no, there's no cop out. You, you've got to just push through. You've got to make it happen. I've always, I don't, I don't gamble. I don't do the Vegas gambling thing, but, uh, you know, the bet, the only bet I've ever consistently made in my life is on myself and just this inherent belief and trust that you can get through whatever the hard time is and come out the other end. And ideally you're successful and you see the outcome and worst case you learn something and you apply it to uh, whatever you do next, but nothing. There's very few things in this world that are, that are fatal. Uh, so, so go out and trust yourself and just make it happen. That's great advice. Randy, I'd like to open up the mic to you. Just to chat about anything. How can people learn more about Vistera uh, or, or just anything that you'd like to chat about before we wrap it up? I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak to your, to your group here. Vistera is a Sanskrit word for expansion. So that's what we're all about is expansion. I also am a big believer in, uh, in enablement. So really a lot of what we do here is about enabling our companies, enabling our team. We've got a fairly young team here that's super bright and learning a ton as, as we go here. Uh, so try to be involved where we can in the communities. I do think there is still a, a certain lack of representation among certain segments of the community and in our industry. Uh, so we're trying hard to uh, uh, our little piece of, of how we can help. Uh, towards that, uh, in terms of a scholarship program, a mentorship program that we've, uh, we're partnered up with, uh, our friends at BD created the star elevate awards quite proud of. So, you know, for us, it's, it's really continuing down our own expansion and starting our new fund, as I mentioned, uh, our investors, we haven't gone down the typical path where it's the institutional investors we've, uh, we've done, uh, what another person called friend raising. We're going to steal another term from somebody else. Uh, uh, so we've done the friend raising thing. We've, you know, we raised close to half a billion dollars that way, about to do the same again. Uh, so at some point, you know, I'm running out of friends, so I need to, uh, <laughs> we, maybe we do need to start talking to some institutional types, but, uh, for now the model is working and we're just happy to continue doing what we're doing. Awesome. Randy, I appreciate all the insights and all the, the new terms that I'll be taking from you. Uh, so thanks again for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.